It was Augustine who, as he read and studied the scriptures, concluded that the new is in the old concealed, and it is the old that is in the new revealed. Now, what he meant by that is when we read our New Testament, we are peering into the fulfillment of what God promised in the old. And when we read our Old Testament, we are peering into the very means by God preparing his people for the work of Christ in the New Testament. The new is in the old concealed, the old in the new revealed. So what that means is we're reading this story here in Exodus 13 of God's people and the whole context really of Exodus, of God's people being crushed under this burden as described in chapter 1 of bitter slavery, crying out to God, God then sending a deliverer to lead them out of the promised land. We are reading all of those details with anticipation, understanding that it's not just a story, but it's a story in which something is concealed, something given to us that we might understand something that's also been revealed. We're not reading our Old Testament in isolation from our New, and nor do we read our New Testament in isolation from the Old. What I'm saying is that by God's good and grand design, the exodus of Egypt is given to us to help us understand our exodus, to help us understand a little bit more of the height, the depth, the breadth, the width of the love of God in Christ. These instructions, these ceremonies, these testimonies that we've just read of here in Exodus 13, they're meant to help us. They're meant to help us understand not only what God was doing when he brought his people out of Egypt, but to help us, Christian, understand what God does as he brings his people out. So that when we come to our New Testament and we read things like that he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Suddenly those words of darkness and bondage and deliverance and kingdom and redemption, forgiveness, they take on meaning. They have a little more depth. They have a context. They have an image that comes to mind as we've read something and know something of those very things that are contained in our Old Testament. What I'm saying is that these doctrines are illuminated, that they're even filled out by the images and the types and the shadows and the stories of Old Testament narrative. Do not read your Old Testament merely as isolated stories. Read them with the understanding that God has given them to us to understand who he is, who we are, and the good news of his son, Jesus Christ. As we read Exodus 13, we learn something more of what it means to belong to God and this God who delivers his people. And friend, if you're not a Christian and you're, you're here considering this or even skeptical of this, Exodus 13 is wonderfully helpful for you as you understand the promise of what God does for sinners. And if you are a follower of Christ, take great comfort. Because this is good news for wandering pilgrims. 
What we're going to see this morning is that we are those who are separated unto the Lord. We are those who were redeemed for the Lord. And then lastly, there's this little narrative section that tells us that we are most certainly led by the Lord. Separated, redeemed, and led. How does Exodus 13 help us understand those great truths? Well, let's look back to verse 3. Is there's this section that reminds us that we are separated unto the Lord. Verse 3 begins with Moses saying to the people. And what you need to see is that there's a pattern here. If you look back up at the end of chapter 12, verse 43, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. God gave them instruction, saying this is the statute of the Passover. And then God spoke again to Moses in verse 1, and he gave him instruction. So really, the substance of chapter 13 is the response to what God has already spoken to Moses. You need to tell them about the Passover, and you need to tell them about the consecration of the firstborn sons. And what we find then is that's exactly what Moses does. Verse 3 tells us that the people of God are to be separated unto the Lord. How? Well, if repetition is the mother of all learning then this annual feast would serve to teach God's people for generations to come. Now, it might seem strange that miraculous ten plagues could be forgotten. And can you imagine the locusts, the frogs, the blood, the darkness, death, and imagine that those would ever be forgotten Could you ever imagine a time in which a generation that came down from that, you begin to speak of darkness and denial turned to blood and frogs and flies, and they look at you, what are you talking about? It would seem from natural reason that these things could never be forgotten. And yet God says, I want you to remember this. And I want you to hold a feast in such a way that you shall remember this. Now, not only would it seem strange that people might forget something as miraculous as those ten plagues, it might seem equally as odd that a sufficient reminder could be contained in something like bread. And yet that's the wisdom of God. Because eventually those who witnessed the deliverance firsthand would not be present to tell. But the importance of that deliverance would remain. And this annual feast would continue to speak It was to be, as God says to Moses, a sign for them. Just like you might mark your hand in the middle of the day to remind you of something, or you pin it to your forehead so that you don't forget. That's the kind of language that God uses. This bread is going to be to you so obvious and serve such a purpose as if you look down at your hand and just said, oh yeah, I can't forget. You pass by the mirror and say, oh yeah, it's pretty obvious. I'm supposed to remember to do this. That's the importance of remembering. Just as you would put those things in front of you, this feast is to put it in front of your face to remind you what the Lord has done. He's brought us out of the land of slavery and how he did it with a strong hand. Now, remembrance is an important element of faith. The charge to remember and the warnings of forgetfulness, they mark out scriptures just like road signs along the way. 
Do not forget. Remember. Do not forget. Remember. And we find this repetition of reminder throughout God's word. And any wandering pilgrim making their way through this journey who assumes that the next generation will understand the meaning and the significance of these various promises and warnings of Scripture is woefully ignorant of the human condition. To assume that this message will just somehow be conferred to the next generation? I don't know. Just, it, they'll just know. That would be woefully ignorant. And for this reason, Israel was called upon to commemorate the Passover for generations. It was to be a lasting ordinance, a festival to the Lord that marked out really not only the beginning of the year, but the beginning of Israel's rescue from bondage. And so as a father prepared the lamb and began to pass out the bread, he was to say to his son, do you remember why we do this each year? And then he would give his testimony of the faithfulness of Yahweh. I do this because of the Lord for what he did for me when I came out of Egypt. Son, you need to know just how bad it was. Moses repeatedly told Pharaoh to let us go, but the mighty king, he refused. Pharaoh made our lives hard through bitter service. We were cursed. We were hated. We were made to work as slaves. And we groaned. We cried out to God. Son, you need to know our cry came up to God. He heard our groaning. He remembered the covenant that he made with our fathers. God knew. God saw. Son, The mighty hand of Yahweh has brought us out. Parents, we need to take note. We have a particular responsibility to testify to our children what the Lord has done. Don't just roll through the motions of the Lord's day. Don't just roll through the tradition of evening prayer, the reading of the scriptures. Take time to ask the question, Do you know why we do this? Do you know the meaning of this? And speak clearly of the strong hand of the Lord, that how he delivers God's people from their sins. In fact, this is not just parents. Every Christian ought to be able to testify, to be able to say in first person personally, let me tell you of the strong hand of the Lord. And how he rescues people from bondage. Let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. Christian, that is the great joy and responsibility of every follower of Jesus. To speak forth what God has done. Do you know who this God is? And do you know what he has done for me? That is the testimony of every follower of Christ. And like the Israelites, God's people, they are to remember perpetually our exodus from Satan, sin, and death, by celebrating a meal. Jesus celebrated the Passover feast, and he transformed that last supper so that we would understand the significance of that supper. 
Because the Last Supper, it not only foreshadowed his imminent work of redemption of what he would do upon the cross, but during that meal, he also revealed that it brings this this demarcation between Old Covenant and New Covenant. Jesus even used those words of New Covenant. The Passover feast, which required this remembering of the Exodus, was now giving way to the fulfillment of this new Exodus, realized through the cross of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. What you understand this to be is now revealed to be this. It speaks of me. And so when we eat the bread as God's people, and we are saying, by this meal, I'm refusing to forget. By this meal... I'm calling to mind and fixing my attention upon the bread of life that was broken for me. How could anyone ever forget the rescue that God brings by the way of the death and resurrection of his son? Just think about your own life. You might not forget it intellectually, but functionally. Do you forget who you are, Christian? Do you forget that you're forgiven? Do you forget of the mighty hand of the Lord who rescues his people out of bondage? We do. Our ignorance is revealed in countless different ways throughout our days and weeks as we fail to remember how good he is, how holy he is, how righteous he is, how gentle, how faithful. And so we need to remember That's why Jesus was very particular when he said, do this in remembrance of me. It's not only memorial, but it must be certainly a remembrance. But why bread, and specifically in Exodus 13, why unleavened bread? Well, there are some simple and very practical reasons why this bread was unleavened. One was just time. Back in Exodus 12, 39, the dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and it did not, they did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Mom put the bread on the kitchen table, but we're leaving before it's rising. It's unleavened bread. Let's go. And as a memorial, as a remembrance, as a testimony, each year, Israel, you are to eat the unleavened bread, free of leaven and yeast, to remind you of the haste in which God brought you out. But there's more to it than that. There's more to it when we find what's concealed there and revealed in the New Testament. The centrality of unleavened bread has a New Testament significance that Paul opens up in his letter to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 5-7. Cleanse out the old leaven, he says to these believers, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. Ah, so it's not just physical bread that we're talking about? No, Paul says. You, Christian, you are to be the unleavened bread. He goes on. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. How? Not with the old leaven the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What was concealed in the Old Testament is further revealed in the New Testament. 
like the Israelites, God's people, you and I, are called to sweep out the old leaven. We are called to put off sinful ways. We are called to testify of our decisive break with our old sinful life. We communicate who we are through our ridding of ourselves of the leaven of sin. They were to be ruthlessly intentional about this removal of leaven from their homes, sweeping it. Some would even go so far as to burn it, going to this place of of devotion saying, we will remove all leaven. And the church in Corinth was to deal with its unrepentant sin in the midst of their own body in like manner, walking in sincerity and truth. This is the sort of separation from evil that's not just merely in word, nor is it just an empty tradition that's repeated. But what Paul is calling you to, Christian, is a spirit-empowered, life-changing, visible turning from sin and turning unto Christ. That is what it means to be a Christian. That is what it means to keep the feast, that we walk in sincerity and truth. Christianity says you must turn from your sin. And Christianity says, by God's grace, you can turn from your sin. For as God's people, we are separated unto the Lord. There's something else that's revealed here in the scriptures. Look back at verse 11. Not only were we to be separated unto the Lord, we are redeemed for the Lord. We see this in verse 11. As God gives to Moses this instruction, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to your fathers and shall give to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that the first opens, all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among you your sons shall redeem. To help his people remember their redemption, God gave them a special tradition, and it began with a claim that God makes upon every son when he says, Mine. This goes back really to Exodus chapter 4. Do you remember this? The whole interaction as it kicks off between Moses and Pharaoh. God instructs Moses in Exodus chapter 4 and says, Then you shall go to Pharaoh and you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And God was faithful to his word. Because in the tenth and final plague, God struck down the firstborn in Egypt, and spared the homes of Israel who were covered under the blood of the Lamb. And in order to explain this monumental event, fathers were supposed to give their sons a history lesson. That's really what it says in verses 14 and 15. When you do this, testify of the strong hand of Yahweh that brought you out. Speak of the hardened heart of Pharaoh. Teach them about God's judgment upon the firstborn of Egypt. Fathers, 
proclaim the redemption of God's sons. Now, we need to understand something here. The title of firstborn has less to do with birth order and it has more to do with the right of inheritance. The firstborn had all the responsibility and all the privileges that signified, really, this is the center of the family. To be the firstborn, in a sense, you stood in the stead of your family and coming generations. You could say that as the firstborn, because of the rights and the inheritance and the responsibilities that were upon you, the livelihood of future generations were in your hands. You're the firstborn. You represent your family, both now and its coming lineage. And so the point of consecrating the firstborn was really to show that the whole family belongs to God. And when God says that the firstborn is mine, and to be consecrated through the price of the ransomed lamb, it was to say your whole family future is to be given over to me. It's mine. They have been brought out of the house of bondage where they served Pharaoh, and now they are going to be brought into the promised land where they will serve me. And so what this means for us is foundational to understand what it means to be a Christian. Redemption does not mean liberation from all authority. Redemption is liberation unto God's authority. Think about what that means. When you hear that we have freedom in Christ, don't think of it primarily as a freedom from. It is more to do with a freedom for. In the scriptures, more emphasis is placed on what we are liberated unto. We are freed for worship, for faithfulness, for service, for growth in obedience and joy, and for glory. You and I have not been created for freedom from all restraint and autonomous authority to do whatever we delight and desire plan, giving ourselves over to our ambitions or feelings, that's not biblical freedom. The whole point of the Exodus is not just to find deliverance from serving this old master. You're free, now just go play in the wilderness. It's a freedom from an old master for them to find delight in serving a new master. That's going to be the whole point of the book of Exodus. And friend, that is the whole point of the Bible that you're not just forgiven of your sins. You're not just freed from the bondage of your sin. You're freed to serve Christ. What this means is that it reveals to us the very heart of genuine discipleship. And by that I mean following Christ. We hear this emphasis in the opening question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Maybe you've heard this question. What is your only comfort in life and death? And just stop for a second. Whether you know the answer or not, how would you answer that? What is my only comfort in life and in death? What would you say, even as you sit here this morning, your life right now, as it stands, 
What is your ultimate comfort as you live? And at some point, you are going to take your very last breath. What is your comfort then? Could you answer like this? That I am not my own. Did you know that's how the answer unfolds in the Heidelberg Catechism? What is your only comfort in life and death? That I'm not my own. How countercultural does that sound when we try to define freedom other than how the Bible defines freedom? My only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but body and soul, and in life and in death, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It goes further. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Friends, that's Exodus 13 all over it. God puts his hand on his people and says, Mine. I belong body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm freed by him, for him. That means that the freest people in this world are those who are owned by Jesus Christ. Our service to Christ is our liberty. Our obedience to God is our great joy now because we have been redeemed. And in light of that, what we hear in the New Testament is Paul's question again to the church at Corinth. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What's concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New. God puts his hand on his sons and says, Mine. I bought you, Christian. The blood of my own son. You're not your own. You are forgiven, most certainly. And you are forgiven so that you might glorify me. That is what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to follow after this Jesus. Church, we show ourselves to be the redeemed of the Lord as we testify through our daily actions that our lives are not our own. How do you find a Christian? Well, in part, you're going to find someone who recognizes I'm not my own. I have been bought with a price, and I live to glorify my God. Oh, well, what does that mean? Well, it means in part that I'm not looking out for my own interests. I'm also looking for the interests of others. Really? Yeah, I have the mind of Christ. And this is exactly what my Lord Jesus did that he put others before himself, so much so that he actually went to a cross, not for the deserving, but the undeserving. And because I follow him, 
That's what it means to glorify him. Interesting. Yeah, I also seek to bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. And I'm also trying to the best of my ability by God's grace to owe no one anything except to love each other. Because I know that in loving you, I'm actually fulfilling the law. We show ourselves to be the redeemed of the Lord as we testify through our daily actions that our lives are not our own. Husbands to wives. Wives to husbands. Children to parents. Members to members. Neighbors to others. We testify. My life is not my own. I have been bought with a price, for I am redeemed by the Lord and for the Lord. Separated unto the Lord, we're also redeemed for the Lord. But this last section tells us more good news. We are actually led by the Lord. Look back at Exodus 13, the narration that picks up in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Verse 20, And they moved on from Succoth and encamped to eat them on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day or by night. The pillar of the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. What we have here in this little section of narration is essentially a bridge. It's a bridge that connects everything that God has done and what he shall do as he leads them through the sea in the wilderness, and ultimately to establish this tabernacle where his presence dwells. He's brought them out. He's surely going to bring them in because God does not abandon his people along the way. He will most certainly bring them to their desired haven. But how does he lead them? Well, notice just what it says here. Number one, he leads us in wisdom. Now, Moses gives us some geographic details here that reveal something more of the compassionate heart of the, and the wisdom of this Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I don't know if you've ever actually looked at the maps in the back of your Bible. Sometimes you do that when you lose interest and you begin to skim. Well, you've done it. You begin to look at the pictures. What's in the back of this Bible here? And maybe you've noticed, as you try and trace Egypt to promised land, or just Egypt to the Red Sea. Let's start there. Maybe you've noticed 
that there is a pretty direct route, and it actually isn't towards the Red Sea. If God's trying to bring his people out into Canaan, the logical route would be to go north along the sea, as many people did. That was actually the highway that you would move from Egypt north along the way of the Philistines. The coastal highway is the obvious and seemingly logical route. But God. God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines' land, although that way was closer, most certainly quicker, more direct. Might we even say the obvious way? But God knows his people. And God always does what is best for his people. And this is just one more display of the manifold wisdom of God and how he leads his people. In his wisdom, God would not lead them in a direction that would ensure their downfall. God led them in a way that would ensure their protection, their establishment, their strengthening and formation. It was not the most direct way, but it was the best way. Christian, how often we need to hear this and remind ourselves of this. We must see the goodness, the wisdom, the compassion and care of God for his people. Don't ever forget that God orders your days and your trials according to his wisdom and for your good. And oftentimes, our good and his wisdom runs contrary to what you think would be best. What on paper you would say, this is certainly the will of the Lord, because look how logical and reasonable and planned and financially wise this would be. But God, but can you relate? Have you found that God often, as you look back in the rearview mirror, has led you in a direction that is not always the most direct, practical, or what you would call efficient to get through life? according to earthly wisdom. And in considering that, can you also see how often we are tempted to complain, to murmur, to whine at the path that God sets out for us, insisting that we know the better route between A and B. But can I remind you, as we submit to God, he directs our lives with loving care and a true knowledge of your condition that he knows our frame and he remembers that we are but dust. And he deals with us in wisdom and in compassion. He deals with us and guides us according to his fatherly protection. And friend, he often keeps you from innumerable evils that you are completely ignorant of. And yet all you can see is the inefficiency of, by how God is leading you. You may not be able to see it as it unfolds before your life, but read the pages of Scripture, take heart, knowing this is who God is and this is what God does. That He leads us in wisdom. But He also leads us by His faithfulness. What is with the mention of Joseph's bones? Does that seem out of place to you? God leading them, going this way, the pillar of fire, dead man's bones. The statement about Joseph's bones might strike you as strange, but it's actually quite important. 
It connects a dot that was placed back in Genesis 50. It draws a line between that dot and this dot as they leave. We get a little bit of insight again from our New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22, that tells us by faith, this Joseph, at the end of his life, he made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. What did he give direction to? Well, that's Genesis 50, verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him. He was put in a coffin in Egypt. What this means is that Joseph believed God was faithful. Even in his death, Joseph was willing to bet upon the faithfulness of God. And so in packing up Joseph's bones as they make their way to leave, it was a glad response to Joseph's charge and the testimony of God's faithfulness. God brought them into Egypt. Why? To preserve them from a famine. And God brought them out of Egypt 430 years later, just like he said he was going to do. So to take the bones of this patriarch is to essentially say, our God is faithful. God brought us in. God promised through Joseph that he would bring us out. And look what God has done. God leads us in faithfulness. This is the sort of testimony and charge that one father says to a son or a neighbor says to a neighbor or a grandson to a grandchild, let me tell you of the faithfulness of God. Let me speak to you of how good he is. Do you know that 430 years ago we came into this land? We were 70 people. Look at us now. Look at what God has done. And we have plundered the Egyptians. God has spared us. He's brought us out. Surely he is faithful. Not only were they led in wisdom and faithfulness, but they were led by his own presence. God not only knows which way is best, he goes along with his people to bring them through that way. Those whom God brings into the wilderness, he does not leave or forsake, but he actually goes with them to take care and lead them through. And not only is this true, he gave them a sign so that they might be assured of this fact. That every morning they could wake up and look and see that cloud, God is with us. Every night as twilight hit and the darkness of the wilderness sky was above them, pillar of fire. Our God is with us. Now as miraculous as the sight of the cloud and the fire would be, the significance is of far greater value. The image of this cloud and of this fire, it's repeated throughout Exodus. It's not just here. It began in Exodus 3. Remember the burning bush? God reveals himself to Moses in a bush that's on fire, but is not consumed. And here this pillar of 
fire and this cloudy presence of God. And it shows up again, not only as God leads them into the wilderness, but eventually they're going to build a tabernacle where the place where God dwells with his people. And what does God do there? Well, there's a pillar of fire that descends upon this place. The same sort of cloudy presence that was upon Sinai as God spoke to his people. God is giving tangible reminders to say, I am with you. I will lead you. I will not forsake you. And how this very truth has served to comfort God's people throughout the ages. It's the same truth that Moses would in turn exhort Joshua. Moses got the sign. He understood. Deuteronomy 31, 7, Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give to them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It's Yahweh who goes before you. He will be with you, and he will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. This is what David would testify to his son Solomon. 1 Chronicles 28. Then David said to Solomon, his son, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid, do not be dismayed, for the Lord, Yahweh, our God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And guess what? Christian, this is the same truth that enables us to journey on in our contentment and rest. Why? Because in the author of Hebrews picks up the same point, the same truth, and exhorts us. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? We're led by God, who is most wise, who's always faithful, and most certainly with us. To read Exodus is to read the story of our salvation. It's to read a theology of our salvation. But don't think for a minute that in reading this theology of salvation, that it's mere categories of just impersonal doctrine or words and definitions with black text on a white page. Because any true study of true biblical theology is a study of the glory of God revealed in the face of Christ. One theologian said that theology is taught by God, teaches us of God, and leads us to God. And this is certainly the case here in Exodus 13, because everything that God did for Israel testifies of the strong hand by which God saves his people. Christ is the bread of life. He is the redeemer of God's elect, and he faithfully leads his people unto glory. Just think about these three images that we have here in Exodus 13. What is concealed and what is revealed. Our Lord Jesus is the bread by which we remember his body broken, and we are nourished by his provision for us. Think about the redemption of the firstborn son. Well, in order to secure our redemption, God offered his firstborn son. 
He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And as the firstborn son, he is the one whom our entitled inheritance, our security, and our provision is wrapped up in. And God says, we are his because of his son. And think about God leading his people in the wilderness. Just as he did there in Exodus 13, our Lord Jesus has gone before us as Hebrew says, he's the captain of our salvation. He's the pioneer. He is the foundation showing us the way to the Father. That we look to Jesus and we see this is the way as he's opened it up for us. That's why we say this is good news. This is good news for wandering pilgrims. And Christian, that's what we are. We are sojourners upon this earth. We are sustained and we are redeemed and we are led by God. We are a people for his own possession so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That is what God does for his people. And that's what we rest in this morning. So let's look to him. Father, we place our great confidence in you because you are the only one who's worthy of our trust. Lord, you've proven yourself faithful. You have proven yourself to be the God who is most wise, most holy, most loving, faithful, and just. Lord, you've revealed this not only in the narratives of our Old Testament scriptures, but you've revealed it most plainly in the revelation of your Son. So, Father, help us to see Jesus. Help our souls to find rest in the good provision that you've made for us in Him. In him. And Father, we pray that you would cause our faith to not only be founded and grounded upon this risen Christ, but that we would continue to be nourished and strengthened, built up in our faith, that as we continue to sojourn on for whatever measure of days that you seem fit to give to us, that we would understand that we are redeemed by you and for you. Father, what we're saying is that our lives are your own. Do with them as you wish for your good purposes, according to your great wisdom, and ultimately that you would receive great glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.